you join me in prayer, please? It's good, Lord. It's good to, it's good to be with two or three hundred voices and participate in this expression of our worship to you through song. I believe that strikes a chord in the heart of everyone. You made us for that. Thank you for meeting with us today. We are here in the name of Jesus Christ, and when we are, there's a promise in your good book that says that you're with us. Thank you. Thank you. And God, thank you for your good book. What we're going to do now is, you know all about it, but we're going to open it up and we're going to look at some statements that you inspired. Let the explanation of those statements be inspired. Let the hearts be receptive and the minds be open to hear what you want to say to us. Whatever that is for each individual one, you have a way of speaking dealing with us right where we're at even though we're all at different places thank you for doing that I'm trusting you're going to do that this morning thank you that your word just a couple statements of truth about your truth your word is a sword a double edged sword a sword that can penetrate right to where it's needed. Your word is a healing balm to wounds and it's an encouragement to the downhearted and downcast. And it is light for those who are in the dark and strength for the weak and hope for the hopeless and so many other things. God, help me get it right today. Keep me out of the way. Exalt your son, Lord Jesus Christ, right here, right now. Unleash the gift of preaching through your spirit. Amen. You may be seated. good to be back with you, church. Yeah. I, I told you before I headed out to the bush that Fish and Game had asked us to help them with some of their wildlife management problems, and so I want to report to you that you can sleep a little more comfortably tonight because there are four dangerous carnivorous creatures that are no longer walking the wilds of Alaska. So I thought you might want to know that. 
<laughs> Pictures, you have to come to me personally, okay? Romans chapter 6, please open your Bibles if you have them. If not, thank you, son. We'll put them on the screen. Let me just, since we've been away from this for a few weeks, I'm going to need to take some time just to get us back on the page. Concept in our minds. We've been spending this time for a number of number of months walking through the greatest letter ever written. Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And what we've been dealing with as of late, actually a topic that began in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul picked up a great doctrine of Christianity, a cardinal doctrine, a monumental foundational stone of truth upon which Christianity is built. And he set that stone center stage in his letter beginning Romans 5.12. And then what he began to do with his brilliant mind and his razor-sharp reasoning is he began to turn our attention to that doctrine and he began to look at it from this angle and then look at it from this angle. And in fact, what Paul is going to do is for three and a half chapters, this monumental doctrine is going to stay center stage until the end of chapter 8. I believe that is the outline of Romans. A lot of things are happening there, but I believe the central piece of what is taking place is that he has got this great cardinal doctrine so influential in the Christian faith and he is going to give us a full treatment of it. And the doctrine is this. It is the doctrine of our union with Christ. It's the doctrine of our union with Christ. It's a doctrine, we've looked at it for a few weeks now, it's a doctrine that makes some incredible statements as we've already seen and is going to make many more in the weeks and months ahead as we're going to unpack those. But the doctrine basically, general brushstroke, overall brushstroke term says this, that at the moment of your salvation, when you placed your faith in Christ, at that moment, the Spirit of God baptized you into the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see that if you look down, if you get your Bibles open, you'll see that in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Don't you know, Paul said, you are baptized into Jesus Christ. It's the 
moment when the Spirit of God accomplished the work at the moment of your salvation of uniting you with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that doctrine means, and we'll see the commentary on this today and, and more today and in the weeks to come, but it means this, it means that whatever happened to Christ happened to you. Now, folks, that's a hard statement on the surface to get our minds and our hearts around, but I want you to kind of lock that away or set that on the shelf and just be thinking about that today and in the weeks ahead, what happened to Christ happened to us. This is so critical of a doctrine. I want to just push pause for a second. And I want to say this. If you're distracted this morning, if your mind is kind of wandering somewhere else than over where your seat is sitting, I want you to rein it back in, okay? I want you to just kind of zero in back here, get all of you here, all of you, get all of you here. Now confirm that you're here with me and say, I'm here, preacher. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. I thought I was going to have to do that two or three times, but that'll satisfy right there on the kind of the sound meter there. So bring it in. Keep it connected to where your seat is and Give your attention and your thinking to this. I also want to say this. You ever heard the expression, God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. You know, I, kind of a catchy, trite statement. It's kind of cheesy, though. Matter of fact, it's a lot cheesy. Because here is what God does not want us to do. He does not want us to check our brains at the door. He does not want us to think that his truth cannot be backed up. Do you know the, there are some who are antagonistic to Christianity, many in uh, the kind of in the intellectual or educational realm that one of the great shots they take at Christianity is that basically you have to just accept ignorance in order to be a Christian. That irks me. That just irks me. Listen, context here is the union that we have with Christ Think about that for a minute. Who are be, we being united to? We are being united to the co-equal, co-eternal God of the universe who is omniscient. He is omniscient. He's the God that knows all, understands all, has always had all knowledge, all wisdom. Would a God like that want us to be united with Him and check our brains at the door? 
No. No. In fact, it is when you come to the omniscient God in being united with Christ that you really, for the first time, begin to see reality like it really is. Because the truth of God, which is the great truth of the universe, the truth of God must be revealed by God. And it cannot be revealed to someone dead. So don't check your brains at the door. When you come to this church, do not check your brains at the door. Get them out, put them right on the table in front of you, and start working them out. God wants you to diligently and consistently work with and at many times wrestle with some of the hard truths of Scripture. You know, there's a lot of hard statements in here that are not easy to understand, and we're going to look at one or two of those today. The whole doctrine of union with Christ, it's hard to get our minds around because it is. It transcends us. It so transcends us. But what it does as we push into it and as we're diligent in mentally thinking about it, trying to unpack it, that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God that is alive and active and He uses it to expand our minds. So I'm absolutely convinced that the greatest way that you can expand your mind is to focus it on and contemplate on and meditate on the deep truths of God's Word. Nothing like it. So don't check your brains at the door. Bring them and let's put them to use here this morning as we jump into this doctrine again of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who is saved having this union at the moment of their salvation, the Spirit of God accomplishing that union as He baptizes us into Christ. Verses 3 through 5 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let me just point out as we start that this text mentions three things here, three clear things. It mentions the death of Jesus Christ, and it mentions the burial of Jesus Christ, and it mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then it does something else central to its communication, it says that every believer participates in all three of those things. So just with that in mind, that kind of as a context outlook to where we're going, 
let's start to look at each one of these piece by piece. This great doctrine of our union with Christ encompasses three personal realities. Here's the first one. The first personal reality is this, that we are united to his death. The last time that I preached here and we talked about this, we touched on this briefly, but I'm just going to kind of get in on the tail end of that to take us forward. We were united with Christ in his death. That's what it says in verse 3. Paul said, don't you know that? As if he's saying, come on, I know that you know this. We were united at the moment of our salvation. We were united with Christ in his death. What does that mean? Well, let me try to set up an illustration with this. It's going to sound so simplistic, so maybe ridiculously redundant, but let me say this. Jesus Christ really died. Jesus Christ was a real historical figure. Jesus Christ was laid on a real wooden beam. A beam that he had carried up a real hill outside of a real Jerusalem. Real iron spikes were driven through his wrists and his feet. A real mallet was used to do that. A mallet that enabled those spikes to puncture and penetrate and pin his real flesh to that real beam. And then real blood flowed out of those wounds and ran down that real cross. Folks, Jesus Christ was really crucified, and on that cross, he really died. What does that have to do with this? I think Paul here is doing the same thing as I just did with the doctrine of our union with Christ because he is saying from 512 and on over and over and over again, you are united with Christ. And I'm not talking about some theoretical, nebulous idea. I'm talking about something real. I mean, as real as you sitting right there where you're sitting. Real, literal, actual. And so he's going to tell us three things about this real union. And the first one is that you really died with Christ when you were saved, at the moment you were saved. In fact, listen, if you didn't die, you're not saved. 
Bring your brains with you now. Let's think about that. If you didn't die to sin, like Paul says here, then you really were not saved. Because the only way for you to be saved is for you to be hidden in Christ because you are a sinner. And you deserve his wrath, not his grace. And so you had to come into Jesus Christ and his death in order for your salvation to become a reality. And if you didn't do that, you are lost. The threshold over which you must step from death into life, the threshold that you must step from bondage into freedom is the threshold of you dying with Christ. And that's what happens. That's what the Spirit does when you put your faith in Christ. He so unites you in a real way, a comprehensive way that you die with Him. Folks, it's the only reason salvation works. It becomes your personal reality. But let me hit this. We, I, you know, it's been three, three or four weeks. I can't even remember if I talked about this last time. But what kind of a death did Christ die? I don't mean... I don't mean, what was the instrument of torture? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, what does Paul say here? What kind of death did Christ die? Paul said that Jesus Christ died to sin. It was a death to sin. That's the kind of death that Jesus Christ died. What does that mean? Bring your brains past the door. Does it mean, you see, we could be in danger here if we misunderstand it. We could be in danger of drawing a wrong conclusion about Jesus, number one, or not drawing the right conclusion about us. Here would be the wrong conclusion. If you take from the statement that Jesus Christ died to sin to mean that he died to his own sin, then you have completely misunderstood the statement. That you have completely done violence to the prolific statements throughout Scripture that make it absolutely, unquestionably clear that Jesus Christ was without sin. That Jesus Christ is the Lamb of the Father without spot or blemish. A perfect Lamb. He's the high priest that doesn't have to offer any sin, any sacrifice for his own sins because he doesn't have any. So that statement, Jesus died to sin, cannot mean that he died to his own sin. So what does it mean if he didn't die to his own sin? Well, it means, you see, it's talking here about his relationship to sin. Let me explain it like this. 
Jesus Christ, who had existed for all eternity, co-equal, co-eternal, second member of the Trinity, had existed for all of eternity in glory, in majesty, in a moment, the God beyond time stepped into time. That God submitted himself, he, Philippians 2, made himself nothing. He took upon himself the nature of a servant, referring to his humanity. He took the divine nature of the eternal God and he perfectly and completely married it with human nature and he entered into our existence fully and completely to live it just like we live it. Facing every struggle, every weakness, every temptation that we face. A complete experience of the human reality became the reality of the eternal God of the universe. And when he did that, folks, it says in, in actually it says it later here in Galatians that he was, Galatians 4, 4, that Jesus was born under the law. That when the God who wrote the law, who inspired it to be written, stepped down into this world, into our reality, he actually placed himself under the law and he stepped into a new relationship to sin when he did that. He started living in the realm where sin reigned. He had never done that before. He submitted himself to live in a realm where sin reigned in death. So when Jesus Christ died to sin, here's the truth, church, when he died to sin, that relationship ended. That new relationship that he had left his eternal abode to step into this, this submission, this self-submission and living in this realm where sin ruled. When he died, that was ended. No longer was he going to relate to sin like that ever again. In fact, Paul goes on to say that, that he died to sin once, once for all. Died to sin once for all. And then in verse 9, he says, Christ will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why? Because he doesn't live in this realm anymore where sin reigns. That was just for a period of time so that he could enter it fully and live like we live in the fullest extent of what that means so that he could die to save those who live here. But when he died, 
it's done. And no longer does death have any dominion over him. No longer does the rule and the realm of sin affect him. His relationship to it is absolutely ended just like life is ended when a person dies. He died to sin. That's the what. Here's the so what. For us, if you're a believer, Paul said, remember, union with Christ is the doctrine. That is true for you. That's true for you. That relationship to the realm of sin, to the rule and the dominion of sin, it is done. Not it's going to be done. Not you got one step of it done and you got a hundred more to go. No, in the moment of your justification, when you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit of God baptized you into Christ. And when that happened, you were baptized into His death and your relationship to this realm of where sin rules and sin reigns and sin has the dominion. That is absolutely done for you. Wow! Wow! I mean, I'm glad I'm at least excited about it. Wow! That's amazing! That's incredible! But that's only the first truth he says here. Here's the next one. Union with Christ also encompasses union, not just with his death, but with his what? With, before his resurrection, with his what? With his burial. Now, what in the world does that mean? How in the world am I, as a follower of Christ, united to his burial? I mean, that sounds just weird. Let's just talk about Jesus for a minute. What does burial do? Just hypothetical here. Bring your brains in. What does burial do? Burial places an exclamation point on the dead. Burial could be said to be a proof of the death. Burial could be said to be a sealing of the death. Now go with me in this. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he died to this relationship uh, to sin in this world. He died to that. It was ended. It was finished. No more would that happen. But then there was a burial. And what that burial did was it just sealed that reality up. It just proved it. It just put an exclamation point on the fact that the connection now with this realm is forever done. You see... It could be said, maybe in some kind of a morbid way, that a person who has died, that that corpse, until it's buried, still has some relationship to this world. I mean, it's still there, it's still visible, it's still 
you know, in the air there or whatever. But at burial, it is just completely sealed up and put away from this reality. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That Jesus Christ, in his death and the, the relationship that he entered into, this different new relationship that he entered into to save us, when he died, that was done. And then the burial put the exclamation point on the fact that he really died and that he's really done with this relationship. That he is completely outside of this world, the things of this world, the rule and the dominion. And folks, the so what to us is this. You at salvation are united to Christ. And in that uniting, you are united with him in his death and you are united with him in his burial. An exclamation point is put on the fact that you are in an entirely new environment now. An entirely, we're not going to talk about what that is yet until we get to point three, but just to say that your connection to what's here is done. You see, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, that the believer is not under law, but under grace. You know what he's saying there? Your relationship to this world is done. You don't live in that realm anymore. You are not under that banner anymore. I have so many, so many thoughts of the context here running through my head. No wonder why Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, after he had set out the initial um, picture of this doctrine of our union with Christ by comparing Christ and Adam, 512 to 521, he gets to 6-1, and he answers this common objection that people had to his preaching of the free, unmerited grace of God, this gross misuse of truth that said, wow, Paul, if sin increases and grace rushes in to superabound over it, man, that means we should go out and live in sin more and more so that grace gets greater and greater. Is it any wonder that Paul goes deep into this doctrine to say, listen, it's not that you can't sin when you're a Christian. You can. You do. I do. But what Paul is teaching here is you should not sin 
It is completely incongruous with who you are and the realm in which you live. That's not your realm anymore. It's not your realm in that you died to it. You are dead to the law. Not only that, you're dead to sin's bondage. You're dead to the chains that held you back. They're not on you anymore. Why do you want to carry them around? Why in the world would you want to live in this new life, dragging around all that junk from that old existence around? It's absolutely incongruous. That's what he's saying there. Verse 2. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But folks, that's only the first two truths. Here comes, you know, say it like this. Here comes the big dog truth right here. Here comes. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Union with Christ encompasses union not only with his death, not only with his burial, but it also encompasses a full and complete union with his resurrection. It means that in the same way that we are comprehensively participators in the death of Christ, dying to sin, and in the burial, sealing that reality off, that relationship off with us, in the very same way, in the same comprehensive reality, we are participators with him in his resurrection. We have a brand new existence. We live in a brand new society. That other thing that was us, it's not only dead, it's buried, it's sealed, it's gone. And listen, just like Christ can't die to sin ever again, neither can you if you're in Because Christ died to sin and paid its penalty in full. All its penalty from the Garden of Eden to the last sin committed at the end of this age. Because he's paid for it and you're in him. You will never have to pay for it again. The debt cannot be paid twice. It was paid once and Now, not only do you get a reprieve from what you deserved, uh, turning away from the wrath that should have been yours, but you also get the participation in the resurrection. You get the glory of God. You get the grace of God and its manifold blessings pouring out into your life. If you are united with Christ, it comes with the package. 
All three of them come with the package. Death, burial, and then resurrection to a new life. So, what does Paul say here about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What specifically does he mention about it? Listen, he says this. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by what? By the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Does that sound um, kind of a little abstract or strange way to say that God the Father raised the Son? That the Son was raised by the glory of the Father? It won't if you understand the meaning of the word glory. The glory of God is His essential attribute. It is really the essential reality of his nature. And then what God does is he reveals his glory in a number of ways. One of the ways that he does that is through displays of his power. That's one of the ways his glory is revealed. And the way his glory is revealed was revealed here was that he displayed his power. He unleashed his power to call forth his son from the grave. And in that, the glory of God raised the son from death. That's the what. Here's the so what. What does that mean for us? It means for us who are united with Christ, who are participators in his same resurrection that the power of God, the greatest display of God's power ever given. That Sunday morning when through His glory, His power broke out and called His Son up from the grave, that that power is yours. Let me give you the context again. Bring your brains in. Listen. Is it any wonder that Paul went here to refute the argument, let's continue to sin? He's saying, you got the power of God, the unlimited, omnipotent power of God breaking out into your life. You don't have to live down there. I shouldn't have to live down there. And far too often I do. But that doesn't negate the truth. Yes, as a Christian, I can still sin, and I do still sin. But my relationship to sin is forever changed. It does not have dominion over me anymore. I 
and I have at my disposal everything I need for life and godliness through my knowledge of him who called me by his own glory and goodness, that through his very great and precious promises, he has enabled me to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Peter wrote that. Let me close just by telling you two things. There's so many, but two things relevant to the text here. Two things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ undeniably prove. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the undeniable proof that the Father was satisfied with the Son's sacrifice. Exercise your brain here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that the Father accepted the sacrificial, the willing sacrificial death of the Son. He accepted that as an all-sufficient payment for all sin. His exclamation point on that was the resurrection. It was a shout from heaven. Let me show you another shout first. You see, Jesus Christ Jesus Christ realized that the sacrifice, I just, I just saw this, I made this connection and know the truth, made the connection this morning that Jesus Christ on the cross, it was revealed to him right at the moment of his death that his sacrifice was accepted. Because out of the agonies of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Out of that eclipse of the sun and the darkness over the land, out of that agony, <laughs> with his last breath, with his final words. This one that had to push up to get a breath. Crucifixion suffocates you. That's how you die. He had to push up to fill his lungs on spikes that were penetrating. And he threw his head back. And he filled his lungs and he said, To tell us, die. To tell us, die. It is finished. A better translation into Greek paid in full. It is proof. Jesus knew that it was accepted. Before the stone was ever rolled away, 
But when the stone was rolled away, God made a revelation to the world. If we'll care to look, if we'll bring our brains into it and really unpack it, he was making a revelation to the world. I have accepted my son's sacrifice as an all-sufficient payment for sin. Here's the second thing that the resurrection proves. It proves that the victory has been absolutely, comprehensively won. How does it prove that, Brad? Here's how it proves it. The biggest weapon in the bag was death. How did sin reign? Sin reigned in death. What did Christ defeat? Death. He defeated the number one enemy. It was a shout to the world. Victory is complete. Comprehensive. Coming right to my door. Coming now right to your door. Here's the doctrine. See, doctrine is boring. No, doctrine is great. Doctrine is what makes the truth fly. Listen, if you're united with Christ, you're united in his resurrection. And it means that the sacrifice for Christ has been applied to your account and you're fully accepted because of his fully sufficient sacrifice. And not only that, it means that your consummate victory is won. Is won. You're still here, but you've won. You may get hit along the way, but you've won. You've won. God, do that for me. I have no idea. Other than for some warped reason, he loved me. While I was yet a sinner, and he loved you, and he still does. And if you're here today and you are yet a sinner, he loves you. Oh, did he display his love for you when he stretched his arms out and he said, put spikes through them because I want to be able to hold them there long enough for the whole world to see that I love them all. But that love for you that can unite you into his death with sin and bury and seal you from this relationship to sin 
in this world and its rule and dominion. And that love that can recreate you into a brand new, entirely new existence. It does nothing for you until you believe it. Until you recognize that you are a sinner and you need a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior and that you come humbly to Him and you say, I don't deserve it, but I'm coming because you showed me. God, you showed me the truth. You opened my mind so I could see the reality that I could never see before. And so here I am, God, save even me. And if you will do that, God will do that. And for you followers of Christ, I told the first service, I, what I like to do right now, what I like to do is just put a mirror up so I'm just looking at Brad and Brad's looking back at me and I'm talking to Brad and Brad's talking to me and you're just kind of listening in. But what it means for us day to day, moment by moment, is that we shouldn't be living as we lived before. We should be living in a, congru in a congruent way with this brand new reality. Would you please stand? I just want you to know there's, there's altars up here as we sing this last song. You're sure welcome to come. You need to pray about anything. Um, encourage you to do that. Let's, let's pray as we close and then we'll sing. Father, well, Lord, I've, I've said enough. I probably said way too much. Just take it and for your glory, use it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.